0: Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcbc.sg. I was reading the newspaper, uh, and if you read the newspaper, you'll see that there have been a few articles where it says that around the world, people are losing faith in government. And it's not just government which is oppressive, dictatorial, or tyrannical. But even in rich democratic countries, surveys show that people are losing faith in government. There is a crisis of confidence in government. So I remember this book that was uh, reviewed in the Straits Times called The Fix. Uh, I went to borrow it from the library. It's quite kind of hard reading. (laughs) But it says that around the world, governments are failing or unable to curb corruption, stop income inequality, prevent violence, Unable to deliver justice, to give basic services security, to solve the problem of immigration and lower the cost of living. And this is resulting in many people having a crisis of confidence in government. But today, God's word speaks on this issue of government. And these are the last words of David. And really, they are a reflection on government leadership and kingship. So it begins in verse 1, and you need your Bibles because we do need to go through this quite closely. It begins in verse 1 by saying, these are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of a man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. It begins by David looking back at arguably the most successful kingship, in Israel's history and he looks to the very beginning and he identifies himself as the son of Jesse. I think he does that because he's actually looking back to his humble beginnings because he was not born of royalty, neither was he very prominent or exceptional. In fact he wasn't even the most exceptional of his own family. He was a, a basically like a nobody that's what he's saying. So 1 Samuel chapter 16 If you remember all the way back, when the prophet Samuel had been sent by God to identify the next king of Israel, when he arrived, he saw Eliab, the brother of David, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abimadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, and Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, but he is tending sheep. So I think that when David looks back and looks at the very beginning, he sees his humble beginning and he says that actually he's a nobody. He doesn't deserve to be king. But what has happened is, as we look at verse 1, it says, God has exalted him and God has anointed him to be king. See, David didn't win a democracy. He didn't win an election. He didn't win an electoral contest, right? Because it is not a democracy that he rules over, but rather it's a theocracy, See, uh, if you actually look at the the meaning of the word, demos comes from the Greek and it means people, people rule. But Israel was not a place where the people ruled, it was God who ruled, It was a theocracy. And therefore, there was only one principle by which, the golden principle by which David had to rule. And that was in verse 2 to 4, he had to rule in the fear of God. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. See, what we see here is very important because David repeats three times that it is God speaking through him, right? The three-four repetition is meant to tell us that this is not David's, you know, manual for leadership. This is God's manual for leadership. And it is not how to be the best king you can be, right, but it is God's word about leadership. And what he says here is that ultimately, this word comes from the rock of Israel. If you remember last week, The rock of Israel, as you study in chapter 22, was the prime reason why Israel was successful, could actually succeed. Because God was her rock, her refuge, her horn, her strength, her shield. And therefore, if God was the strength of the country, then the king who is appointed under God only needs to do one thing, which is to fear God and do the right thing. That was the golden rule of leadership. And for God, God is not like some person who changes his mind, or no, he's like sort of doing, uh, you know, skills training where he's, you know, he's learning new skills. God's rules are always the same. Because even before the choosing of their first king, King Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, God had said that the king who would be set over his people had only to follow one rule, and that was to fear God. So one Samuel chapter 12, God had said, Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the king, the, sorry, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Later on he says in verse 23, As for you, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and to serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. See, David himself Is not the king, he is just the under-king, under God himself, who is the true king. And therefore, he must always fear God and be accountable and answerable to this God. See, in a democracy, uh, the, the, the rulers, in a sense, or the governors, are answerable to the people, to the demos. They're answerable to the courts, to the judiciary, they're answerable to the parliament. But if the world we live in has taught us anything, it is that democracy with its judiciary, its courts, its people, its checks of balances, as good as they may be, the problem is that of human sinfulness and sin. Because it is designed by men and women and run by men and women, it is really not enough to restrain the wickedness and the evil of people. You just have to look at the newspapers, look at, uh, you know, what's happening in South Korea, or even look a bit more closely to the country in our north, the country who will be unnamed, with the scandal which starts with a number ends with a B, right? And David as a man, he himself also failed to fear God throughout his reign as a king. If you remember, when he committed adultery and murder, In a democracy, he would have gotten away with it, in a sense. As king, he did seem as if he got away with murder and adultery. But God sent the prophet Nathan to teach him to fear God again. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, speaking God's word, had come to David and said, You are the man, you are the sinner, right? You are the one who have done evil, and God will judge you for it. And after that, we see David coming back to the fear of God. And when the king fears God and does the right thing, for his people, it is a great blessing. And if you look here in verse 4, when this king fears God and does right, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. And here we need to put on our artistic side, right? We need to tap into our artistic uh, feelings, right? Because these are poetic images. And they're meant to show us that when the king fears God and does what is right for the people, they experience good things. Good things akin to sunshine in morning after rain. So I googled uh, exactly the words right, that, were, that were written there in uh, verse 4, right? Beautiful sunrise in the morning, right? Sunrise after rain, and you can see the splendor of the, 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 the vitality and the freshness and the blessing of, of that image. And this is exactly what it's like to experience a king who fears God. And does what is right. I remember someone once telling me about how uh, they went to some country, I don't even know who was telling me, to climb a mountain. And I said, oh, what did you do? They said, oh, we left at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, you mean it wasn't hard enough to climb the mountain already? You had to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning to climb up? And they said, yeah, because we wanted to get to the mountaintop before the sun rose. And I said, was it worth it? And they said, yes. It was worth the experience because when they got to the mountaintop and they saw the sunrise, it was a majestic experience. And that's what God is saying. When the king fears God and does what is right, the experience of the people is akin to the sun rising on a new day, the sun rising after rain, sun coming through the window. Because in verse 6 and 7, it contrasts that with evil men who would be king. Evil people who would be king. In fact, the words here literally, I don't know if, if your translation has it, it literally is the word worthless. These are worthless people, sons of Bilal. Right? This is a word that has been repeated a few times in 2 Samuel. Because when these people come to power, they are like thorns. Right? Like thorns. And again, it's, it's a visual picture. right? So if you have thorns what happens when you have thorns they're they're they prickly they're sharp they when you grab them they cause you to bleed in fact they're so sharp it says there that they're only safely handled when you have a tool of iron or a spear to to move it because they're so sharp well that is the experience when your king or your ruler is an evil or wicked person instead of having sunshine it's like is like holding on to a thorn, holding on to a thorny brush, a brush. So again, I was reading that book, The Fix, right? And I was saying that uh, just in the chapter I read in the beginning, in countries where there's high corruption, uh, people, uh, the child mortality rate is one third higher than less corrupt places. Uh, disease is more rampant because there's less running water. Uh, people die younger because bridges collapse and money for medicine is stolen. So this is what bad rulers are like. But God says that He will hold these bad rulers accountable because they will face judgment and destruction. There is no escape for them before God. But if you notice, as I've been going through the passage, I've sort of been looking at it, not in a sequential way. Right? So if you look at this diagram, you can see that there's a bit of a sandwich. right? So, the first part speaks of the good ruler, the ruler who fears God. Then the last part of it talks of the bad ruler, the bad ruler who does evil. But in the middle is the heart and the meat of the passage, which is why David succeeds. And it's not because he has feared God consistently all the time during his reign. It is because God has promised him that his house will always be right with him. That there is an everlasting covenant between God and David. And in 2 Samuel 7, if you remember, if you go back to 2 Samuel 7, God had declared to David that he himself would establish a house for him. And when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom." He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken from me, away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." So if the first part was about the principle of kingship, that means you fear God, then this is like the golden rule of success. Why does David succeed? Because of God. God is for him. Not because David is the one who succeeds, it is because of God's promises. You can't trust David's efforts, but you can trust God's promises behind his words. And because of that, That's why it says there, in chapter 23, verse 5, that God has arranged and secured every part of His rule and will uh, will not fail to bring to fruition salvation and His desire. Now, the reason why David succeeds is not because of David, but because of God. God exalted him, God anointed him, and God promised him that he would succeed. And the rest of the chapter, as we read, is full of concrete examples of how God has fulfilled this promise by arranging and securing everything so that David's rule would be a good rule, would be a successful rule. So the first concrete example we're told of comes in verse 8 to verse 12, where we, we see of three mighty men and their three mighty deeds. Right? So the first guy kills 800 men with his spear. And then there's another guy who fights until his hand grows so tired that it like has cramps. And then the last guy fights in this field of lentils and manages to defend it by himself. But why does this happen? Well, it is a fulfillment of God's promise. God secures and arranges the victory because in verse 10 and verse 12, both times it says very clearly, the Lord brought a great victory that day. The Lord brought a great victory. So it is God who brings the victory for David. Not David. David wasn't even fighting there. But we come then to verse 13, which is a very strange story. It's a very weird story. right? In fact, when you read it, you're kind of like, what is happening here? I don't understand what's happening. So let's read it carefully in verse 13. Uh, During the harvest time, Three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, where a band of Philistines were camped in the valley of Rephaim. At the time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord, Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of the men who were at risk of their lives, and David would not drink it? Now, what a strange story this is. So, if you look at this map, uh, David finds himself in Adullam. We don't know when this is, when this battle took place, but somewhere in time this happened. And uh, he was uh, from Bethlehem. David was from Bethlehem. So, you know, in in nostalgia, looking back to the good old days, he remembers the sweet water from the well of Bethlehem. You know, to him, it was like Perrier water. Who knows, right? Why it was so nice to him. Anyway, so he speaks out loud, you know, reminiscing. and says, oh, wouldn't it be good to have that sip of water from that well that I used to have when I was a kid? Anyway, so these three mighty men overheard David, or maybe somebody else overheard David and told some other people, who told some other people, who told some other people, and these three mighty men over here and decide, okay, out of our devotion for David, our love for David, why don't we go and get this water for David? But it wasn't like, you know, going to your NTUC extra cold storage to get this special water, right? That you can't get at 7-Eleven. They had to go all the way from Adullam to Bethlehem, which was 15 miles apparently. And the other problem was that there were the Philistine garrison which was in between them and Bethlehem because they were already based in Bethlehem. But these three men decided, okay, let's go to Bethlehem and get this water for David. Now, if it was me, I'd probably think, okay, let's do the ninja thing. right? Let's sneak in in the middle of the night and sneak out. Nobody will know. Maybe we'll dress as women or something. Who knows, right? Get in and out, get the water. And uh, mission accomplished. But these three guys are not ninjas, right? They're rambos. So they decide, okay, let's go and fight everybody. Get the water. Come back and fight again. And somehow they manage to do it. They bring it to David. And what does David do? He pours it on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be a bit unhappy, right? After all the effort I did. But what is the point of the story? Why does David do this? Well, I think the the story is actually very profound, isn't it? Because if you look in verse 16, it says he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Now, what is the point of this story? What is happening here? Well within the context of the chapter, remember God is at the center of this chapter. God is the one who has arranged and secured success for David and his kingdom. And David seems to be recognizing that and saying, look, the success of these three men has come, not because they were particularly skillful or strong or mighty warriors, but because of God. God has allowed them to succeed in this mission. God has allowed them to come back safely. And the water, in a sense, represents their blood, their life, their devotion to David. And David is saying that actually this devotion, this blood, this water is not worthy of me. It is only worthy to be given to God. It's like a sacrifice, an act of worship to God. And I think that's a very important point that we have to see here. That is almost like David is saying that like their devotion to him should rightly be devoted to God instead. Because God is the one who allows these victories. God is the one who allows all these things to happen. And that's why he pours out the water to God and not drink it himself. Because he will not allow that worship, or that devotion to be given to him, but rather to be given to God instead. Now, I reflected a lot on this passage when I was preparing, and I thought that, you know, a particular application that you have to work through, as I work through, I don't know whether you agree with me, you might disagree with me, and come talk to me about it later, is that when we read of this passage, it does show us that devotion is not given to man, but given to God. That's what David seems to be saying. And I think this is particular relevance to us today because too often we give our love and worship even our devotion to man, but as we see, even the great David recognizes that that devotion is inappropriate for man and should be given to God. So I remember a friend of mine who once went on to uh, to do theological studies and was a ministry intern, he left his church to follow a pastor, a very a good pastor, influential pastor, very capable pastor. But sadly, this friend of mine became disillusioned with this pastor. And he became very dispirited. He dropped out of theological college. He fell out of church. In fact, today, I'm not even sure whether he's a Christian at all. And I think that that's what this passage spoke to me about. That his devotion was not to the God behind the pastor, but his devotion was to the pastor himself. And when that pastor let him down, then his faith crumbled. Now I think that as we look at this passage, we see that David himself is unworthy of that sort of devotion. It is inappropriate to worship David in that way. And I think we see that as we look at the very last section. Because as we look at the very last section, there are a whole series of mighty acts, of mighty men, of mighty victories. Uh, Obviously, it's a bit hard for us to read through the whole thing, you know, it's just full of names which are meaningless. But they represent mighty individuals, each of them, mighty victories won. But we come all the way to the end, and then we read, at the end of all these mighty victories and mighty men, verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite. And there were 37 in all. Now when we hear the name Uriah the Hittite, it's a bit like going to, uh, uh, you know, going to, I guess, the Esplanade and listening to this wonderful concert. And then right at the very end, you hear this bop, right? Or you go to this great play, and then right at the very end, the, the actor stumbles and falls down, right? The last scene. Or you're eating this, you know, great, 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 expensive fresh restaurant. And then at the last dessert, you find a cockroach in your dessert. Because of all these high points, you, you see Uriah the Hittite. And, and, and that's like the lowest of the lowest point for David I mean that was the lowest rock bottom point for David and and why is he mentioned here what's the point of Uriah being here at the very end I mean why is he included here well God is not a dummy and the writer of 2 Samuel is obviously very skilled and careful in the way that he's put together his material there's a reason why Uriah is here I think the only reason that Uriah is here really is to show us that David is a flawed and sinful king because Uriah the Hittite represents David at his worst, at his adulterous worst, at his murderous worst, at his lying worst. He should not be king based on the principle of fearing God and doing the right thing because he did all the wrong things for Uriah. He didn't fear God at all when he dealt with Uriah. But it shows that God gave David grace. God forgave David. So in the same way that God exalted David, raised him up, gave him an everlasting covenant, gave him great victories, God gave David grace. And that grace came about because God had promised David an everlasting covenant. You notice that in verse 5, it doesn't say that God gave him a lifetime covenant, right? a lifetime guarantee, a lifetime contract. It says an everlasting contract because it was looking forward to someone from the house of David who would not have the imperfections and the sin and wickedness of David. And obviously, Because we live on this side of Jesus Christ, this side of the cross, we know that that perfect king, that perfect ruler is found in in Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah chapter 9, we read the prophecy of Jesus. It says, For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And in Luke chapter 1 it says, You will be a child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to David. See, part of the problem that I said at the beginning of the introduction was that the world has a sense of crisis about government. And the problem is not the hardware, the institutions... The problem is with the software, the people. The thing is, no matter who rules, they will all be like David. Even if we are well-meaning, even if we try to do the best we can, we will be fallible and failing. So I remember reading in the newspaper that uh, Amos Yee, you know Amos Yee? is applying to, uh, for political asylum in America. And he was... I was writing, I was reading about what he, he, he believes in, and he said that, oh, you know, I believe in anarchic communism. Now, anarchy basically is uh, the belief in the total absence of any government at all and the absolute freedom of the individual. And I think that anarchy really is uh, uh, the logical conclusion to disillusionment with government. But the problem is not with government, the problem is with humanity, with people. You see, we live in the illusion, the humanistic illusion that humans are evolving to be better, human society is evolving to be better, and human government is evolving to be better. But what we see here is that we are less likely to cheat, to lie, to hate, to be jealous, to be unfaithful to be corrupt, to abuse power, or to make mistakes, or to misjudge, than David. Because we are human, the answer is not in progressively better human government. But rather, the picture the Bible gives us is the solution is in divine government. It is in God sending His own Son to rule. And in that rule, it will not be... Tyranny or oppression or mistakes, but rather it will be like what was described earlier on, sunshine on a cloudless morning. It will be like sun after a rainy day. You know, I was reflecting on the holiday pictures that I have, right? You know, you take pictures of when you're holiday and they're always filled with rainy days. No, obviously not, right? You take pictures, you always feel the sunshine and, and, and you know great. Views, right? So I thought, was thinking, all these sunshine pictures, well, it encapsulates what the coming of Jesus as the divine ruler will be like. It will be like sunshine. It will be a new beginning, filled with vitality and freshness. So I hope that, uh, okay, don't worry about the pictures anymore. Okay. Um, so I hope that as we look at this passage, we, we can really look forward. Uh, to Jesus and him coming again and that divine government which really will be like sunshine to us. Okay, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Okay, dear as we come before you today. We thank you for this very deep and profound passage on a reflection of David's rule and kingship. How you raised him up from being a nobody how you exalted him and how you protected him as your shield. Dear Father, we thank you as well for showing us how it is because of your everlasting covenant with David that we can look forward to a better future where the rule of Jesus will be one of peace, one of the image of sunshine and brightness and light, one of joy and blessing. Dear Father, as we live in this world, we pray that we will not fall prey uh, to the humanistic illusion that people, our character is getting better and better and somehow society will evolve to perfection. But help us to see that our imperfections go with us Come with us with every generation. And it's only your Son, Jesus, who comes and brings your divine government to this world. And help us look forward to that time. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.